Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, welcome to New Books and Literary Studies on the New Books Network. My name is Kathleen de Guzman, a host on the channel. Today I will be talking to Candace Ward. Candace is Associate Professor in the English Department at Florida State University in Tallahassee, Florida. She's also the author of a new book titled Crossing the Line, Early Creole Novels and Anglophone Caribbean Culture in the Age of Emancipation, published by the University of Virginia Press just this year. Thank you, Candace, for joining me today to talk about your new book. Oh, you're so welcome. I thought we'd get started by asking you to describe how you came to this project, which is your second scholarly book after uh, 2007's uh, Desire and Disorder, which examined uh, 18th century medical texts within sentimental culture. So is there a way in which uh, this project uh, emerged from that project? Um, yeah, I had been uh, looking into primarily fever narratives uh, was the the part of, of medical text that I was working with. And um, a big part of 18th century sentimental narratives, of course, deals with fever. People are always dying of fevers or suffering fevers. And as I kind of got drawn into the archives there, I noticed a lot of work had been uh, done on tropical fevers. So uh, a colleague of mine, I was at Illinois State University at the time, and a colleague told me or suggested to me that I should go to Jamaica, which oddly had never, the thought had never occurred <laughs> occurred to me to do that. Um, but I uh, was awarded a Fulbright uh, in 2002 and so went, went to Jamaica and stayed there for uh, seven months or so. And it was there that I just became uh, completely infatuated with the, the connections between English sentimental narratives and the, the Caribbean colonial culture. And fortunately for me, uh, people at the university uh, in Kingston were incredibly generous, incredibly friendly, and uh, pointed me in, in so many fruitful directions. And uh, uh, Norval Edwards, or Naughty Edwards, um, who is at the university and uh, previously had been on the uh, editorial board of Small Axe. Um, he told me about a novel that I really needed to read called Hamill the Obium Man, and mm. I had never, ever heard of it. And so I found a copy in the national, or no, it was in the university uh, library. It was a Xerox of an old microfilm uh, version. So this was before I could have searched it out on Google. Uh, but but I got hold of it and read it and was just completely blown away. And then he had also pointed me toward uh, Kamal Brothwaite's work, uh, his early historical work on Creole society in Jamaica. Mm-hmm. And he had also published uh, a small article in, in Savaku and dealing with 
with um, British literature during the period of slavery. And he mentions Hamill and a couple of other works. And so I knew I wanted to eventually write about these novels. I, I'm still very much focused on, on prose fiction of the period. and uh, But it wasn't tied specifically to the fever uh, desire and disorder. So, so I had to uh, wait a little bit until I tackled that. And then that's how I started uh, crossing the line. That's such a fascinating story to go from a fever text to, uh, I guess, <laughs> the, the archives and to Bradley. And so I'd like to shift to talking about the, the actual book now, so Crossing the Line. Could you just tell us a little bit more about the significance of that book's title? Uh, you, your intro touches upon a, a few key meanings that that phrase had in, in the historical period that you cover. Right. I um, this was this was quite a fun part of the research. I was I was really curious. Um, I knew I wanted to talk about crossing the line metaphorically, uh, particularly in ways that that in the 18th and and up into the 19th century, people living in the in in the uh, metropole talked about those people who had traveled to the Caribbean as being so different, um, especially if they stayed uh, in in the Caribbean, as being different from metropolitan subjects. And uh, they talked about the journey undertaken um, and and the way that the ships would actually have to physically cross the, the latitudinal lines, um, not quite the equator at that point, uh, but the Tropic of Cancer, for example. So this idea of crossing the line being a physical act was very, very important to me. And then uh, the book touches on a lot of other kinds of crossings, like crossing uh, generic lines, uh, crossing uh, racial lines, um, linguistic lines, all of these things. So I, I thought that the title was was a kind of a natural uh, for for the study and for the work that I wanted to do with these with these novels. So I, I got to explore uh, nautical traditions and and there are ceremonies that actually I think they still go on um, if if an individual, on is is crossing one of those latitudinal lines on board a ship and they have never made that crossing before they're kind of hazed they they have to undergo a, a kind of a baptism ritual and sometimes these ceremonies are quite um quite raucous and uh so i read a lot of descriptions of these lines for example charles darwin uh had to be ducked and shaved when he crossed the equator uh, when he went on his, you know, journeys. And in, in the novels, they talk about the crossing the line ceremonies and the kinds of tensions that these uh, rituals alleviated to some degree because it was truly a kind of a topsy-turvy idea. It was the the common sailors that were in charge of this. And uh, officers of the ship were not protected from having to undergo this ceremony and the the saying was that there was no law uh, as you crossed the line. That that uh, you know authority went out the window, and and it was a time for uh, common the common folk on the ships to to take charge and to be the boss. So I thought that was a really intriguing idea, and um, yeah, so that was kind of what what led me to take 
take on this title. Hmm. So if we could just uh, dwell on the, the title a little bit more, I think uh, the term uh, Creole, for example, is a term that uh, is not at all uh, self-evident to listeners today. And I was wondering if you could just uh, uh, tell us what that word means, particularly uh, in the time period that, that you study. Right. In the time period, um, in the colonial era, and some etymologies of the term you know, take it back to uh, Spanish colonial sites and in the slave colonies, um, it, it referred to someone born in the Americas. So uh, it, it didn't necessarily have any uh, thing to say about a person's um, racial background, their ethnic heritage, but it meant to be born in, in the Americas. So that in the, um, in the period that I write about, uh, Creole could be a noun. It could be an adjective. Uh, it, you could talk about Creole ponies, for example, um, you know, horses that had been, uh, you know, descended from European horses. But by that time, a strain had been bred that, you know, that was local and um, stronger. Uh, it was thought better acclimated to the situation. It could refer to people. Um you typically saw the the term referring to people just simply as that Creoles, um, or it would also, you know, be carry a, a racial uh, component as well. So you would have white Creoles or black Creoles or African Creoles. So, uh, but the term itself, it just referred to the place where the subject was born or where the subject had lived for a prolonged period. Um, Brothwaite's formulation talks about it uh, in terms of, of committed settlers uh, when it's used for white creoles, for example. So, um, yeah, and I, and I, I think that uh, in terms of contemporary scholarship, there's been a lot of work in the past oh, 30, 40 years even um, having to do with high, hybridity studies, um, with ideas of creolization um, as kind of uh, multicultural, multiracial mixtures of people and cultures and languages. And so I, I felt fortunate that I could draw on both the early sense of the word and the um, use the more contemporary sense of the word to complicate my readings of these colonial texts. Right, right. So I want to actually go back to, or build off of something that you talked about earlier when you uh, were describing how this project developed and reading uh, Hamill, the Obia Man, on uh, microfilm. And it, it seems uh, that the the archive of uh, early Creole novels that you study in the book is, is a it's quite a small archive, and in particular, you mentioned how uh, Samuel Gray's uh, 1841 novel, uh, Old Port Royal, uh, it's a two-volume novel, and the, the second volume is, is actually missing. So just wondering if you can just talk a little bit more about your uh, specific archive of, of novels. Right. That was one of the trickiest things that I, that I had to uh, work through. I, I know um, way back uh, in the early in the early days of the project, I had kind of, uh, you know, chosen, you know, several several works, and I knew I wanted to write about them. And then um, it was actually Sean Gowdy, um, the author of Creole America, mm -hmm. 
he he had very generously read a very very early draft of my introduction, and he and he asked, "Well, why why were there so few of these works?" And I was like, "Oh my gosh, he's right. There are so few of these works. What am I going to do? What's what's up with this? Why why are there so few of them?" And um, I think I was looking at it first by period. I thought okay, I'm an 18th century scholar, I have to work with 18th century texts. And and I found that too limiting. And then when I scooted up into the 19th century, I found some a few other titles, but then they too were, um, I mean, there weren't many of these texts written. And so as I, I tried to grapple with the why of, of that small archive, and one of the things that became apparent was that even though some of the novels are, read, are, are written, that I discuss, are written after emancipation, they were in a way, um, and I know I'll mangle the pronunciation, uh, romanites, thesis-driven novels. They were political novels. And the politics of these novels, especially before the act of emancipation, you know, in, in 1830, that went into full effect in 1838, was that they were they were very much um, what one contemporary reviewer called party works. These these were novels written by affiliates of the plantocracy as justifications for arguments against emancipation. So once that debate appeared to be over, there was no reason for novelist to to take up the novel form to engage with the emancipation debate um so that to me explained why there were there were relatively few novels um you know written written by white creoles in this period um before emancipation but then as i kind of scooted my i allowed myself to kind of break the 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 chains of my 18th century um, uh, self to go into, you know, further into the 19th period, uh, sorry, 19th century, that, that even though the emancipation debate had ended with the act to admit, you know, full emancipation, the issues that concerned those earlier writers persisted and, writers in the Caribbean continued to talk about them through novels. So uh, E.L. Joseph, um, his novel Warner Arundel is, is a really interesting book that deals with, um, you know, establishing a new kind of plantocracy, one that's perceived as humane, uh, a, a group of people who have put the evils of slavery behind, but still maintain their, power and and superiority over black and brown populations um and and then you you get writers like um michelle uh philip who is himself of mixed race and who's so who takes on the same kinds of issues that appear in the earlier novels but from a much uh different perspective so um i'm not sure if i quite addressed <laughs> the question about the archives, but that's a rationale for what novels that I was looking at. 
Oh, you did, and that actually uh, brings me to uh, the next question I have about uh, the distinct content of these novels. So in one of your chapters, uh, your chapter on uh, Warner uh, Arundel, uh, you quote from a contemporary review of the novel that describes the novel as, uh, quote, uh, it looks uh, like fiction, some like truth, some like novel, some like history. So could you just talk about, uh, I guess, the... Uh, I guess the crossings of genre and mode that we find in in these novels. Yeah, I I think actually that 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 particular kind of crossing is a residual um, way of writing from from the 18th century. I think, and I think that this is one of the um, one of the benefits of of having read so many 18th century British novels is is that the writers of works of fictions engaged in all kinds of literary output. They, they weren't necessarily self-identified strictly as a novelist. So they wouldn't have um, limited themselves necessarily. Um, yes, I can be engaging in a work of fiction, but some of my fiction is going to borrow from, you know, another uh, kind of, of prose, so travelogue or uh, poetry or um, spiritual autobiography, all of these things um, that took place in in the 18th century novel kind of continued into the 19th century text. And in fact, um, E.L. Joseph's Warner Arundel is, is an interesting case in point in the, um, that particular novel. I'm not sure if it's still available if it's still in print or not. Um, at one point, it was in print from the University of the West Indies Press. And the editors of that edition point out that on the title page, the, the novel itself refers uh, to it like one of Lawrence Stern's novels, uh, Tristram Shandy, in fact. Mm. And if you've ever read Tristram Shandy, you know that it's anything uh, but a straightforward uh, work of narrative narrative fiction. There's there's so much uh, going on there, and so I think that that um, accounts for some of the crossings, uh, generic crossings. I think another part of it had to do with the politics that these writers wanted to engage in. They wanted to instruct uh, readers in a pleasing way, and so uh, as the the author of of Marley puts it, the machinery of a novel is is a really great vehicle for educating people about particular uh, truths, and that's in quotation marks, of course. So, who would have been the the readers of these novels? Would they have been other white Creoles throughout the Caribbean, or or were they more addressed to to the metropole? Um, that's. Uh, you know, I was trying to answer that question in another context, and I think that's the trickiest question uh, of all to try to, to figure out. Even the books that were published in the UK, either Glasgow or Edinburgh or London, they would have been, so they, of course, would have circulated in the Metropole. They also would have made their way back to the Caribbean because you had a very lively 
um, I'm thinking of, of Jamaica in particular, and I'm sure the, the case was the same in Trinidad and Barbados, probably in all the islands, uh, a very lively uh, book-selling trade there. So so they would have like been shipped back to the Caribbean and sold in, in bookstores and uh, printers' offices. And then there, the in the case of Marley, that book, I mean, I'm sorry, not Marley, Montgomery or the West Indian Adventure, the earliest of the novels that I look at, that was published in Kingston. Um, so that definitely would have circulated among white Creole readers. And then also it would have gone back. I think I found um, a reference to Montgomery in a circulating library catalog. So, so they wanted as wide a readership as they could get. But it wasn't necessarily located on one side of the Atlantic or the other. Um, and that holds for North American readers as well. Um, there there were reviews and um, allusions to these works in, say, the Philadelphia uh, newspapers. So, so they made their way around. I wanted to ask you as well uh, how you see these novels, because I saw this as a kind of thread through some of the chapters, how you see these novels... Uh, dialoguing or trying to create their own sense of, of history. And I mean, going back to the broader topic of blurring generic lines and crossing lines, I mean, you know, I'm thinking of a text like uh, Edward Long's uh, History of Jamaica, which just seems so outlandish in certain portions, despite being a history. So what, what, does, uh, what happens to that idea of history in these novels? I think, I mean, this... This goes back to the notion of them, especially the the earlier ones before emancipation, as being political texts. I think that these authors understood several things. They understood that um, that the abolitionists uh, back in England were um, winning, as it were, that they were winning the um, the PR campaign um, against slaveholders and that they wanted to correct um, what was being said about Creole culture. And I think one of the reasons that they wanted to correct that version of events was that they have a very lively sense of history, that that things are being documented, that things are um, being recorded, as it were. And so they wanted to uh, assert their own kind of historical take on events. So especially um, when, you, when you get to a work like Warner Arundel, for example, uh, which was published in 1838, that's the same year that E.L. Joseph, uh, the author, published his History of Trinidad, which was that English colony's first English-language history. So then he sets the events of the novel in the 1790s, which is actually um, a little earlier than E.L. Joseph himself even arrived in Trinidad. But So you see these connections between uh, writing a straightforward history and writing a historical novel. And um, and the other novels in Crossing the Line are also historical novels, you know, set in, in the past. And so um, 
I think there was a strong sense on the part of the authors, um, like, you know, most historical novelists, that that fiction is a way to, say, bring history to life. And it's also a way to validate history um, and sometimes in ways more effective even than a, a straightforward nonfiction history. Um, and it's all tied up with uh, impending uh, strands of nationalism, um, I think, are, are in there as well. But, but I, I, I think that historical fiction played uh, an important role in, in both their, uh, the defense of the older plantocracy and in establishing a new and improved uh, post-slavery plantocracy. Mm. So one of my uh, favorite lines from the, the introduction in your book is uh, where you uh, elaborate about the, uh, the, the broader implications of this uh, admittedly small archive of, of white Creole novels, and you write, uh, quote, the novels featured in Crossing the Line attest to the indefensibility of the white Creole position, end quote. And I mean, for... For our listeners out there who are most likely not familiar with any of these novels, uh, what is the, I guess, the takeaway that present-day readers would have if they were to read a novel like Hamill, the Obia Man, or uh, or Marley? Um, I think, I mean, what I was trying to say in that line, too, is that there's there's a way that... Well, there's there's been an ongoing debate about, uh, especially among uh, colonial Caribbeanists, uh, how how do you engage with the archives? What 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 are you doing uh, in these archives, especially when they are produced by people who were avid supporters of a system of brutality and oppression? And a horrific institution. So why do we why do we need to bother with these with these works? And what I'm trying to show um, by looking at them and putting them in the context of of life in the in the Caribbean colonies at the time is that they they point to the kind of human um, elements that that are at work. Not, I mean, I, I'm not. I'm not saying that we oh oh these poor white creoles they're so so misunderstood. I'm not <laughs> saying that at all. Um, but that that these writers were engaged in supporting a culture that they knew was indefensible. They they knew that slavery was morally repugnant, and they had to somehow rationalize and justify their place in society and and they found writing fiction might be one way one way to do that um but also those kinds of strategies of rationalizing and justifying um romanticizing even we see it today um right, it's right. it's just you know I, I finished this um, a good bit before events in Charlottesville, for example. But in the, in the wake of Charlottesville and all the discussions about, uh, you know, monuments and uh, the myth of the lost cause, um, these were the same things. These were the same things going on uh, with these Creole writers. So I'm trying to present them 
I want readers if they if they do read my book and if they feel driven to read uh, some of these novels, I want them to say, "Oh my gosh, <laughs> this is this is exactly you know what's going on right now. This is precisely what's going on right now." Um, because it's all con- connected. We can't, there's no firm marker between, you know, past and present these days, not in our contemporary climate uh, at all. So that's what I was hoping for. Right. And I mean, there's a another, I guess, thread in, in the book is uh, this uh, notion of history as uh, revolving around not the idea of time passing, but uh, time accumulating. And I definitely see that, uh, that continuity between a, these white Creole novels and, you know, our current age of ongoing white supremacy. Right, right. And the idea, I mean, I think that's, uh, that, that of course is um, from Ian Balcom's uh, Spectres of the Atlantic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he kind of for- gives that formulation of, of time, but also um, the idea and, because I teach 18th century uh, classes and I'm sure you've encountered this as well as a Victorianist, it's so easy um, reading a 200-year-old work to say, oh, goodness, we've certainly put those ideas behind us, and that's been proven false and, and so forth. And um, the idea, though, that these are really uh, kinds of uglinesses that have persisted and that continue to, to operate in our culture, I think that's, that's what the emphasis has to be on, that there, it's not over <laughs> The history is not finished, so. Right. So I've uh, taken up uh, quite a bit of your time, and I, I'd like to begin wrapping up by uh, asking you uh, what you're working on now. Yes. Well, now I'm. Uh, I'm. I want to again trying to trying to uh, draw on the context of what I discovered in in uh, the work of Crossing the Line. The the colonial subjects that I was ex- examining don't didn't necessarily categorize themselves along the lines that we now in the 20th and 21st century uh, do uh, Caribbean studies, um, Anglophone Caribbean, Francophone Caribbean, mm-hmm, Hispanic mm-hmm. Caribbean. And so for my next project, I want to engage the archives to look at it as a more pan-Caribbean phenomenon. So I've been... Uh, Look, I mean, this is very early, early stages. I've been looking for connections uh, between, uh, you know, people who saw themselves as much more um, Caribbean cosmopolitans. Uh, they were multilingual. They there were, you know, everyday exchanges between, you know, islands that even if if Haiti had been a you know, a, a French colony, it was now independent. Jamaica is an English colony, but there's lots of traffic between Jamaica and Cuba. So um, all these exchanges, that's what I want to explore through the print culture. Okay, so you want, you're not looking exclusively at novels, but at print culture uh, more broadly. Right, right. I'm looking at newspaper. I, I was able to um, do some work uh, in the Montgomery chapter on, on newspaper offices in in Kingston, and so I want to expand that uh, and look at other printing families, for example, um, and networks uh, across you know the various uh, colonial lines. So I'm very excited about that. Yeah, that sounds awesome. I mean, there's a way in which uh, I guess the Caribbean archive. I mean, the 
I guess the standard narrative around it is that there's a a, a lack. I mean, I'm thinking of you know Derek Walcott's poem, mm-hmm. "The Sea Is History," but at the same time, there's also this uh, this excess, particularly when we look at uh, a broader idea of print culture by turning mm-hmm. to newspapers and and whatnot. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right, and one of the one of the papers that I'm um, really interested in is uh, was uh, it was called the Watchman in Jamaica Free Print free press and that was established by two men of color um robert osborne and edward jordan and they were they were publishing their newspaper right before emancipation so 1829 or thereabouts so here was an example of an afro-caribbean paper operating in kingston with a a pretty healthy circulation you know in island terms um and very influential to the abolitionist activity in england through the anti-slavery reporter which would pick up columns um and reporting from the watchman and reproduce it uh in in the anti-slavery reporter so that was something that was very exciting to me and so i'm looking forward to follow up on that yeah, because that that uh, configuration. I mean, it's it's the opposite of exactly of we tip, how we typically structure the the metropolitan colony. Exactly. Awesome. Well, I, I can't wait for for that to to come out, and I'm sure you're excited to I guess hunker back down in the archives after exactly. writing a book. <laughs> okay, so we have been talking about the book uh, "Crossing the Line: Early Creole Novels and Anglophone Caribbean Culture in the Age of Emancipation." Uh, Thank you for such a great conversation about your work, Candice, and uh, thank you to the listeners out there as well. Thank you very much, Kathleen.